0: This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Now, you can get your free audiobook if you go to Audible.com and sign up for the Gold Member Plan, and that's going to get you a free book. And you can download it, and even if you cancel your membership, that book is yours to keep forever at Audible.com. <laughs> How's it going? I'm, I'm glad you stopped by. I really am. You could be doing anything in the world right now, but you're sitting back listening to this in your comfy place, and I think that's awesome. I was going through my um my CDs uh, the other day. They used to be things that I can pride place inside of the house, but now they're just back in the garage. So I, was, I was going through that. And I came across, out of all things, a Metallica CD. You know, the black one. If you haven't seen it, you haven't really missed much. It was basically black, and yeah, you know, just reminiscing on, on obviously listening to that. Bit of a Metallica fan. Just, just gonna get that out there. And yeah, I was just just reminiscing on, on that. I actually went and saw Metallica play live. That is a tale for another time. Let me tell you, that could be a whole comfy place in itself hmm, help you go to sleep by telling you about a Metallica concert. You know, I think that could work. I think we could make that work. It was interesting. Um, I came from a town of about a thousand people, so going to a concert of about 15,000 people, yeah, that was 15 times more than my entire town. That was That was something. So anyway, to my surprise... Check this out. I had actually found some pretty cool news. Metallica is helping to um, helping Romania to build its first oncology. Check this out. Uh, a bit of a statement here. In keeping with their set practice of supporting a community organization in every local locale they visit, Metallica has donated a quarter of a million euros, uh, about two hundred seventy nine thousand US. Uh, to the Romanian Association uh, building the country's first pediatric oncology hospital in the latest tra- charitable pledge from the band during their ongoing World Wired Tour, which is right now, you know, going around Europe. So yeah, Metallica's helping to donate to build the first oncology for Romania, and I think that's awesome. They do do an amazing gig, by the way. So, you know, if you've, if you've ever seen Metallica uh, perform live, you have to also like Metallica. It's one of those things. That they're kind of a force to be reckoned with. Um, If you don't, then you're probably not going to get the best out of the concert. But if you do, yeah, they really hold themselves up high. But again, for another time, we've got some cool stuff to talk about today. But first, I want you to picture a bunch of lovely Lovely dogs at a cinema watching a movie. This actually happened. A cinema full of well-behaved dogs kicking back at a cinema. Service dogs uh, attended a theatre performance as part of their training. The goal of the day was to train service and therapy dogs to be able to accompany their future handlers in theatre environments. Huh. It's important to prepare the dogs for any activity the handler may, you know, like to attend, said Laurie McKenzie, owner of the Canine Country Inn Working uh, Service Dogs, and told CBC Radio. The theatre offers a relaxed performances for those who would prefer a more casual theatre experience. Hmm, yeah, so it's a bunch of dogs. And they were just kicking back, relaxing, as, as good dogs do, knowing they're a good dog. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to give you that image for a second that somewhere in the world, this week, a cinema was full of happy, happy dogs watching a movie. Wouldn't that make a great screensaver on the the TV? Just a picture of, not the movie, but watching dogs watch a movie. I could watch that all day. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, just I'm thinking about that. Let's continue. Here's another cool story. The UK Water Company is about to plant 11 million trees to assist in carbon neutral aims. 11 million. The UK's nine major water and sewerage providers, including Yorkshire Water, Anglican Water, and United Water. I think that was on the Monopoly Board, wasn't it? United Water. Sorry, United Utilities. Hmm. You know, when I played Monopoly, I always would, you know, do the, uh, buy the utilities and think that was my surefire way to cleaning up. It never was. I don't really even recall the last time I won Monopoly. Yeah. Nope. Every single time, went down in flames. Anyway, back to these guys. Building 11 building, planting 11 million trees. And uh, yeah, they've committed to planting 11 million trees in order to improve the natural environment across 6,000 hectares of English land. Well, I think that is awesome. Not as awesome as this. Check this out. This is cool. A former child refugee tracks down the camp worker who gave her a bike. Mevan Babakar, and apologies for the pronunciation there, uses Twitter to find a man uh, who, uh, whose gift brought joy to her more than 20 years ago, a pushbike. Mevin Babakar met her former aid worker Egbert, a former child refugee, posted an online call-out to track down a camp worker who gave her a bike and has found and met the man who generously, generosity, bought her joy. Heaven 29, lived in refugee camp in the Netherlands after she and her parents fled the Gulf War in the 1990s. On Monday, she posted a photograph of the former camp worker on Twitter and asked whether anyone would tell her his name. This man who worked at a refugee camp near Zwolle, in the Netherlands, again, apologies for the pronunciation, near Zwoll, um out of the kindness of his own heart, he bought me a bike. My five year old heart exploded with joy. Oh man, you remember the first time you got a bike? It's probably the closest thing we've ever experienced to superpowers, right? I mean, running as fast as you can when you're a child, that felt pretty damn cool. But when you're riding that push bike and you are riding that push bike and you're going fast and the wind's in your air, the closest thing to feeling like Superman you can probably get. Unless I was doing drag racing, those muscle cars—that must be like Superman. But I'd, yeah, that's never gonna happen. That's never gonna happen. So let's stick with the bike. He was so happy to see me. He was proud. Um, he was proud that I had become a strong and brave woman. He said that, um, that was his wish for me when I was small. How cool is that, huh? Yeah, it's pretty cool. So yeah, so that's just some some, you know, cool news that's happening around the world right now. And um I just wanted to, you know, let you know. But today we are going to be talking about well, there's no other way around this. We're going to be talking about a criminal and and moreover the love that Australia has for certain criminals. The you know, the the English history of Australia, which it isn't that new. Again, the Aboriginal history is vast and extensive and ancient. However, the the English history isn't isn't that new, and so we tend to gravitate to a whole bunch of of heroes of our culture. And this one guy that's oh my God we love. Uh, he is called Ned Kelly. Oh yeah, yeah, he's called Ned Kelly. Just some some stats off the top. Uh, if you if you look up Ned Kelly on uh, Amazon, there'll be like three hundred and eighty two returns. Multiple movies were made about uh, this man. Uh, there was one good one made with Heath Ledger, and one not so good one made with Mick Jagger back in the seventies. If you want to have a good time and a good chuckle, um, and appreciate the power of editing, uh, because well, Ned Kelly was a rough-and-ready bush ranger. Uh, Long-beard, stocky guy, big man, you know, man's man, that type of thing. And when you see the preview, um, you know, Mick Jagger was not the most man's man kind of guy um, in that typical sense of the word. Anyway, and certainly when he spoke, it wasn't... Well, it wasn't even Australian. He spoke with with that English accent. So during the preview of this, and you gotta check it out. Go to iTunes or YouTube or whatever, and just just you know Google or type in, um, yeah, uh, Ned Kelly uh, and then nineteen seventy something, and watch the preview. Because the editing guy who wanted to promote the movie clearly was up to a challenge of well, as soon as this guy opens his mouth. No one's going to believe that he's a Australian and B, a rough and ready bush ranger, so they simply didn't have him talk at all. Guaranteed, the entire, the entire um, thing is just he, he's he's walking, and there's a song playing, and he's walking through the Australian bush and you know, all that kind of stuff, and that's it. That's the entire preview. Hilarious. Yeah, so many interesting facts about this guy, Ned Kelly. Uh, And tonight, or now, uh, you might be listening to this in the morning, I'm assuming night, but it it could be morning. I want to go through this and actually talk about this guy, Ned Kelly, because he's actually a bit of a character. Um, And it's interesting how his life uh, tends to weave around other people's achievements. Like, apparently the first... Um, the first feature film in the world was actually a film about Ned Kelly. Uh, as it says here, it's often reported as a Charles Tate 1906 film, the story of the Kelly gang. It was the world's first full feature film. Its first screening was in the Anthem Hall on the 26th of December 1906 and is alleged to have uh, prompted five children in Ballarat to hold up a group of school children at gunpoint. This resulted in the Victorian uh, chief secretary banning the film in towns with strong Kelly connections. And for many years, the film was thought to be lost, but segments were found in various locations, including some found in rubbish dumps. So, who is Ned Kelly? Well, uh, I, th- I think as um, time goes on, he's going to, you know, elevate himself to sort of a. Well, we are going to elevate himself to this absolute and utter legend status. But according to Wikipedia, um, the bit that says the Ned Kelly fun facts for kids. That's right, they have a criminal outlaw gang in the fun facts for kids, and this is what it says: Edward Ned. Kelly, um, born June 1855 uh, to November 1880, is Australia's most famous bushranger. He became a symbolic figure in the Australian history, folklore, books, art, movies, as a national icon. His image was used during the opening ceremony of the 2000 Summer Olympics in Sydney. I remember watching the opening ceremony every single Australian, the entire time, they were thinking, please don't stuff it up. Please. Just just let it go smoothly. It, it did. Um, I think the closing ceremony, some mechanical failures, but the opening ceremony, yeah, that's all we thought about. And when it finished it was like, yes, we didn't stuff it up. Uh, he is remembered in the saying um, as game as Ned Kelly which I've never said in my life, Um, the word, again, in a case meaning brave. While he was growing up, his family was often in trouble with the police. Uh, After fighting uh, a policeman at his home in 1878, Kelly went uh, to the bush and hide. He murdered three policemen who were searching for him. The government made Ned, his brother, and the two friends outlaws. They became known as the Kelly Gang. Ned Kelly led a gang uh, to rob a number of banks and even capture a whole town. The final violent fight uh, It wasn't a very big town, by the way. It wasn't a massive metropolis. Again, let's—yes, you know, Australia small is now. You dial it back two hundred years ago. Not many, uh, not many people here. The final violent fight with police took place at Glenrowan. Kelly, dressed in his homemade metal armour and helmet. That's right, he forged his homemade metal armor and, and helmet, which is, is partly the reason why he's such an iconic figure now, because if you if you Google Ned Kelly, you'll you'll see that. And in, yeah, it was it was it was pretty intense. And it was he was captured and sent to trial, found guilty of murder, and he was hanged in the Melbourne jail in eighteen eighty. A painting of Kelly by the Australian artist Sidney Nolan was sold in 2010 for $5.4 million, the highest price ever paid for an Australian painting. And again, this guy is an outlaw. He's a criminal. He's a murderer. Um, as detailed in the information that was on Fun Facts for Kids. <sighs> so, that's the brief version. But here at Comfy Place we like to go to the details, the boring, sleepy details that can help you go to sleep. So thanks to the good old Wikipedia and a whole bunch of other stuff, I have the details of Ned Kelly. And there's actually some pretty interesting stuff in here. It is it's pretty cool. Um Yeah. Let's 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 dive on in He was born In the British colony of Victoria, as the third of the eight children to an Irish parent, his father, a transported convict, died shortly after serving a six-month prison sentence. And the prison sentences in those days were hard. Leaving Kelly, aged 12, as the eldest male of the household. The Kellys were a poor uh, selector family who saw themselves as downtrodden by squatocracy have no idea what that means. And as victims of police persecution. While a teenager, Kelly was arrested for associating with Bushranger Harry Power. No reference to or um, alignment with Harry Potter, Harry Power. And served a two-year prison uh, terms for a variety of offences. The longest stretched being from 1871 to 1874 on a conviction of receiving a stolen horse. He later joined the Greta Mob, a group of bush larrikins known for stock theft. A violent confrontation with a policeman occurred at the Kelly family home in 1878, where Kelly was indicted for attempted murder. Fleeing to the bush, Kelly vowed to avenge his mother, who was imprisoned for her role in the incident. That's right, she was associated, so she was in prison as well. Uh, and after he, his brother Dan, and two associates, Joe Byrne and Steve Hart, shot dead three policemen, the government of Victoria pro- proclaimed them as outlaws, and, and and he's like the the endless debate about the whole Kelly thing, right? Which is, uh, was he you know a, an absolute criminal or was he actually defending his life against a heavy persecution of police? So yeah, it's 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 that was a real topical debate at the time. Kelly and his gang eluded the police for two years, thanks to part to the support and the extensive network of sympathisers. The gang's crime spree included raids on Euroa, derildery, I'm not making those town names up, by the way, they actually exist, and the killing of Aaron Sherritt, a sympathiser-turned-police informer. Now, in a manifesto letter, Kelly, denouncing the police and the Victorian government and the British Empire, He probably didn't think that through. That's not a smart thing to do. You know, throwing in the British Empire as well. Set down his own account of the events leading up to his outlawry, demanding justice for his family and the rural poor. He threatened dire consequences against those who defied him. In 1880, when Kelly attempted to derail and ambush a police train, failed. He and his gang dressed in armoured fashion from stolen plough mould boards, engage in a final gun battle with the police at Glenrowan. Kelly, the only survivor, was severely wounded by police, uh, fire, and captured. Despite thousands of supporters attending rallies and signing petitions for his reprieve, Kelly was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging, uh, which carried out of the old Melbourne jail. His last words were famously reported to have been said, Such is life. Historian Geoffrey Searle called the Kelly and his gang the last expression of the lawless frontier in what was becoming a highly organised and educated society, the last protest of the mighty bush now tethered with iron rails to Melbourne and the world. In the century after his death, Kelly became a cultural icon, inspiring numerous works of arts, and his subject more biographies than any other in Australia. Kelly continues to cause diversion in his homeland. Some celebrate him as Australia's equivalent to Robin Hood, while others regard him as a murderous villain, undeserving of the folk hero status. Journalist Martin Flanagan wrote, What makes Ned a legend is not that everyone sees him the same. It's that everyone sees him like a bushranger on the horizon casting its red glow into the night. That's a romantic, romantic portrayal. But let's go back to his family background and his early life. Kelly's boyhood home, uh, built by his father in Beveridge, that's actually a town, Beveridge, in eighteen fifty nine. At age eleven, Kelly saved a young boy from drowning in a creek and was awarded a green sash in recognition for his bravery. Kelly wore the sash under his armor during the last stand at Glen Rowan; it remains stained with his blood. You can actually see this in the Benella Museum. So if you're thinking of going to Melbourne, Australia, now you can go to Benella and you can see a green sash. Actually, if you drive around Victoria, you just you're bound to bump into something with Ned Kelly. Every town he loves, or the country towns love to associate themselves with Ned Kelly one way or another. There's statues, there's large statues, there's comically large statues of Ned Kelly, and you'll see them all over the place. So you know, drive around and uh, enjoy. Kelly's father, John Kelly, known as Red, was born 1820 in the county Tipperary Ireland, to Thomas and Mary, uh, near Cody. At age 21, he was found guilty of stealing two pigs and was transported to the Prince Regent um, arriving at Hobart Town, Van Diemen's Land, on the 2nd of January, 1842. So he stole two pigs, and his sentence was to travel to the other side of the world, to uh, Tasmania now, known as Van Diemen's Land. And if you do come down, see that? It was essentially hell on earth. Yeah. It, 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 there's no question about that. After he received his Certificate of Freedom... On the 11th of January, 1848, Red Kelly moved to, the Victor- uh, to Victoria and found work at James Quinn's farm at Wallen Wallen as a bush carpenter. He subsequently turned his attention to gold digging, in which he was successful, and it was, uh, enabled him to purchase a small freehold, 615 pounds, in Beveridge, just north of Melbourne. On the 18th of November, 1850, at the age of 30, Red Kelly uh, married Ellen Quinn, his employer's 18-year-old daughter, at St. Francis Church by the father, Gerald Ward. Edward Kelly was his parents' third child, named after Red's closest brother. The exact date of his birth is not known, but a number of lines of evidence, including 1963, interviewed with the family descendants, Paddy and Charles Griffiths, a record from his mother, and a note to the school inspector, Didn't even know there was a school inspector. All suggest his birth was uh, in December 1854. Ned Kelly was baptised as an uh, Augustinian priest, uh, Charles O'Hee, who also administered his last rites before his execution. In 1864, uh, Kelly's family moved to Avinal, near Seymour, where they soon attracted the attention of the local police. As a boy, Kelly obtained basic schooling and became familiar with the bush. In Avenal, he risked his life to save another boy from drowning in Hughes Creek. The boy's family gave him a green sash, which he wore under his armour during the time. In 1865, Red was imprisoned for having meat in his possession, for which he could not account. Let's take that in for a second. Imagine someone coming into your house, looking in your fridge, and saying... You got a receipt for that meat I, I I wouldn't, but then again, my fridge is full of you know meat that i've I probably should throw out because it's been in the freezer for about a year, and it's probably not good anyway um yeah, so he was he was present for that um unable to pay the twenty five pound fine, he was sentenced to six months with hard labor, served at the Kilmore jail. Once released, Red drank heavily, which had ultimately fatal effects on his health. In November 1866, his body started to swell from dropsy, and he died in Avonlea on 27th of December 1866. He and his wife had eight children: Mary Jane, uh, died as an infant aged six months; Annie, later Annie Gunn; Margaret, later Margaret Skillicorn; Ned, Dan, James, Kate, and Grace, later Grace Griffith. The saga surrounding his uh, father and his treatment by the police made a strong impression on the young Kelly. A few years later, the family selected 88 acres of uncultivated and untitled farmland at Eleven Mile Creek, near the Greta Acres of Victoria. Sorry, the Greta area of Victoria. In the dispute. Uh, with the established graziers on whose land the Kellys were uh, encroaching. They were suspected of many crimes of cattle and horse-stealing, but never convicted. In all, 18 charges were brought against the members of the Kelly immediate family before he was declared an outlaw, while only half that number resulted in guilty verdicts. This is a highly unusual ratio for the time, and led to claims that the Kelly family was unfairly targeted. Uh, from the time they moved to the northeast Victoria, perhaps uh, the move was necessary because the Kelly's mother, mother's squabbles with the family members and her appearances in the court over family disputes. The author, um, Anthony O'Brien, has argued that Victoria's colonial police practice, practices treated arrest as equivalent to proof of guilt. So if they arrest you, you are guilty. Well, that's nice. That's... That's real nice, so now on to his rise to you know notoriety. Bush ranging with Harry Power, not Harry Potter. Harry Power has been described as Kelly's bush ranging mentor. Power's capture, Kelly was falsely accused of informing on the Bush Ranger in eighteen sixty nine aged fourteen. Kelly met Irish-born Harry Power, alias of Henry Johnson, and a transported convict who turned to bush ranging in northeastern Victoria after escaping Melbourne's Pentridge Prison. Uh, Side note, Pentridge Prison now um, is no longer a prison. It's actually a series of townhouses true story. Um, The wall that's surrounding the the, the, the prison's still there because it's heritage listed, you can even see some guard towers and stuff but inside the actual uh, prison, quote unquote, um, is townhouses, cafes etc. Yeah, so people are choosing to be there as opposed to dying to escape. The Kellys formed part of the network of sympathisers and by May 1869, Ned had become his bush-ranging protege. At the end of the month, they attempted to steal horses from Mansfield property of squatter John Rower as part of a plan to rob the Woods Point Mansfield Gold Escort. They abandoned the idea and fled back into the bush after Rowe shot at them and Kelly temporarily broke off his association with Power. Kelly's first brush with the law occurred on um, mid-1869 in October over an altercation between him and a Chinese pig and fowl dealer in Mawson's Creek named R. Fook. According to Fook, f uh, he passed the Kelly family home. Ned brandished a long stick and declared himself a bush ranger before robbing him of ten shillings. Fook... I'm saying that very carefully, by the way. Fouke uh, then travelled to Benella to give his account of what happened to Sergeant James Whelan, who was, according to the fellow officers, quote, a perfect encyclopedia of knowledge about the Kellys and their criminal activities. The next morning, Whelan chased down Kelly uh, in the bush outside Greta and took uh, him to Benella, where he testified in court the next day that Fouke said very carefully... Uh, abused his sister, Annie, for giving him creek water, not rainwater, when, as a traveller, he requested a drink. Then, uh, the story went, Fook beat Ned with a stick after he came uh, to his sister's defence. Annie and the two family-related witnesses corroborated Ned's story. Given that no other witnesses came forward, the charge was dismissed. On the 26th of October, Kelly was released. Kelly reconciled with Power in March 1870. Over the next month, the pair committed a series of armed robberies as police scrambled to find them and identify Power's young accomplice. By the end of April, the press had named Kelly as the culprit, and a few days later he was captured by police and confined to Beechworth Jail. Kelly uh, front-end court on three separate robbery charges, the first two of which were dismissed as none of the victims could positively identify him. On the third charge, the victim also reportedly failed to identify Kelly, but they were in fact refused a chance to identify him by the superintendents Nichols and Hare. Instead, Nichols told the magistrate that Kelly fitted the description and asked for him to be remanded for trial. He was sent to Melbourne, where he spent a weekend in lockup before being transferred to Kyneton to face court. No evidence was produced in court, and he was released a month later. Historians tend to disagree over this episode. Some see it as evidence of the police harassment, others believe that Kelly's family intimidated the witnesses, making them reluctant to give evidence. Another factor in the lack of identification may have been that the witnesses had described Power's accomplice as a half-caste, a person of Aboriginal and, and European descent. However, the police believed uh, this to be a result of Kelly going unwashed. Power often camped at Glen Rowan Station, a large property owned by Kelly's maternal grandmother. Sorry, grandfather, James Quinn, which sat at the headwaters of the King River in June 1870 while resting in a mountainside gunya, brackets, bark shelter, that overlooked the property. Power was captured by a police search party. Following Power's arrest, word spread within the community that Kelly had informed on him. Kelly denied the rumour, and in a letter that bears only a surviving example of his handwriting, he pleads with Sergeant James Babington of Kyneton for help, saying, Everyone looks on me like a black snake. The informant turned out to be Kelly's uncle, Jack Lloyd, who received a £500 reward for his assistance. Hmm. I think that's about $20 million in today's money. Reporting on uh, Powers' criminal career, the Benella Ensign wrote, The effect of his example has already been uh, to draw one young fellow into the open vortex of crime. Unless his career is speedily cut short, young Kelly will blossom into a declared enemy of society. Horse theft, assault and imprisonment. In um, 1870, October, a hawker, Jeremiah McCormack accused a friend of the Kellys, Ben Gould, of stealing his horse. Gould wrote an incident note to give to McCormack's childless wife that was used to wrap two carved testicles. Kelly passed it to one of his cousins to give it to the woman. When McCormack confronted Kelly later that day, Kelly punched him in the nose, causing McCormack to fall Kelly was arrested for the part in sending the cubs, parts, and the note, for uh, assaulting McCormack. He was sentenced to three months hard labor on each charge. Kelly was arrested. Uh, sorry, Kelly was released from Beechworth jail on 27th of March 1871. Five weeks earlier and returned to Greta. Three weeks later, horsebreaker Isaiah Brack. Uh, quotation, Wild Wright, arrived in a town on what uh, Kelly later described as a very remarkable chestnut mare. Wright visited the Kelly homestead to see his friend, Alex Gunn, a Scottish miner who had married Kelly's older sister. Wright intended to ride the borrowed mare back to Mansfield, the hometown of his owner, but discovered the next morning it had gone missing. Mm. Gunn, let, lent him one of his own horses promising that if he found the mare he would keep it until Wright returned. Soon after Wright departed the mare was found by Gunn and the neighbour William Bricky Will, Williamson. Kelly then took the mare to Wangaratta where he stayed for four days on April 20 uh, 20th of April 1871 while riding back to Greta Kelly was intercepted by Constable Edward Hall who suspected that the horse was stolen. He directed Kelly to the police station, and on the pretense of having to sign some papers, as Kelly dismounted, he tried to grab him by the scruff of the neck, but failed. When Kelly resisted the arrest, Hall drew his revolver and tried to shoot him, but it misfired three times. He was then overpowered by Kelly, who later said that he straddled him and dug spurs into his thighs. Causing the constable to roar like a big calf attacked by dogs. Quote After subduing Kelly, with the assistance of several bystanders, Hall pistol whipped him until his head became a mass of raw and bleeding flesh. Although Kelly maintained that he did not know what the, who the mare belonged uh, to. Someone other than Wright, he and Gunn, were charged with horse stealing. When it was later revealed that Kelly was still imprisoned on Beechworth Jail, when the horse was taken, the charges were downgraded to felony receiving a horse. Kelly and Gunn were sentenced to three years' imprisonment with hard labour. Wright escaped arrest from the theft on the 2nd of May following an exchange of shots with police, but was arrested the following day at the Kelly Homestead and received an 18-month sentence for stealing the horse. Kelly served his sentence in the Beechworth Beechworth Jail and then at H.M. Prison, Pentridge, near Melbourne. On the 25th of June, 1873, Kelly's good behaviour earned him a transfer to the Prison Hulk, Sacramento, anchored off Williamstown. He returned to Pentridge after several months and was released on the 2nd of February, 1874. Six months earlier for good behaviour. That same month, his mother Ellen married an American, George King, with whom he had three children, King Kelly and Dan Kelly, became involved in cattle rustling. To settle the score with Wright over the chestnut mare, Kelly fought him in a bare-knuckle boxing match at the Imperial Hotel at Beechworth, the 8th of August, 1874. Kelly won after 20 rounds and was declared an unofficial boxing champion of the district. Soon afterwards, a Melbourne photographer took a portrait of Kelly in a boxing pose. And Wright became an ardent supporter of Kelly. Alright, so let's just, just pause for a second on this. Remember at the start how I said that, you know, the movies have been made by you know, by Ned Kelly? And remember how I was talking about that the 1971 was cast by Mick Jagger? So just imagine now, bare knuckle Ned Kelly, 20 rounds of fist fighting. Bare knuckle too, by the way. Blood everywhere and all that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. This guy is a no-nonsense kind of person. And in the 1970s movie, it was cast by Mick Jagger. Seriously, you need to go see that 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 trailer. It's, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's actually really cool to check out. So I I I yeah, just stop this right now and just 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 start it. I'll do it tomorrow. It's 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 all good. You're probably in bed right now, uh, assuming you're not already asleep. If you are, that's that's great. I'll just I'll continue. On 18th September 1877 in Benalla, Kelly, while drunk, was arrested for riding over a footpath and locked up for a night. The next day, while he was escorted by four policemen, he, uh, he absconded and ran, taking refuge in a shoemaker's shop. The police and the shop owner tried to handcuff him, but failed. During the struggle, Kelly's trousers were ripped off. Trying to get Kelly to submit and taking advantage of his torn trousers, the Irish-born constable Thomas Lonigan, whom Kelly later murdered at Stringy Park Creek, blackballed him, quote-unquote. What's blackballed? Glad you asked. It is grabbed him and squeezed his testicles. It's right in here. It is times like these I wonder with... Wikipedia, whether people have just updated this and just chucked this in, but I'm going to assume this is fact. Grabbed him by the testicles and squeezed. During the struggle, a Miller walked in and on seeing the behaviour of the police said, You should be ashamed of yourselves. He then tried to pacify the situation and induced Kelly to put on the handcuffs. Kelly was charged with being drunk and assaulting police. He was fined £3, um, $14 million in Australian money today, one shilling, which included damage to the uniforms. In October 1877, Gustav and William Bormegarden were arrested for supplying stolen horses to Kelly. Gustav was discharged, but William was sentenced to four years of jail in 1878, serving time at Pentridge Prison, Melbourne. The Fitzpatrick Incident On the 15th of April, 1878, Constable Strachan, the officer in charge of the Greta Police Station, learned that Kelly was at a certain shearing shed and went to apprehend him. As lawlessness was rampant in Greta, it was recognised that the police station could not be left without protection, and Constable Alexander Fitzpatrick, who, like the Kellys, was also of Irish descent, was ordered there for relief duty. He was instructed to proceed directly to Greta, but instead rode uh, to the public house at Winton, five miles from Benella's police headquarters, where he spent a considerable amount of time. He remembered that a couple of days previously he had seen in the Police Gazette an arrest warrant for Dan Kelly for horse-stealing. He was sent to Kelly's house to arrest him, despite the uh, police policy that at least two constables participating in the visits to the Kelly homestead Finding Dan not home, he remained with Kelly's mother and the other family members in conversation for about an hour. According to Fitzpatrick, upon hearing uh, someone chopping wood, he went to ensue that the chopping uh, was licensed. The man proved to be William Bricky Williamson, a neighbour who said he needed a licence only if he was chopping wood on Crown land. According to Williamson, he was at his own selection a half a mile from Kelly's, and was arrested there when he refused to give information about the Kelly's. Fitzpatrick then observed two horsemen making uh, towards the house. He had just left. The man proved to be the teenager Dan Kelly and his brother-in-law Bill Skillington. Fitzpatrick returned to the house and made the arrest. Dan asked to be allowed to have dinner before leaving. The constable consented and took a seat near his prisoner. While the constable was standing guard over Dan Kelly, the elder brother, Ned, rushed in and shot him in the left arm, two inches above the wrist, with a revolver, and a struggle followed, and the brother, assisted by their mother, Williamson and Skillian, soon overpowered the constable, and he was beaten to the ground insensible. On regaining consciousness, he was compelled by Ned Kelly to extract the bullet from his arm with a knife, so it might not be used in evidence and on promising to make no report against the assailant, he was allowed to depart. He had ridden away about a mile when he found that two horsemen were pursuing, but by spurring his horse into a gallop, he escaped. On regaining safety, he no longer considered the promise which he had made to the criminals as binding, but reported the affair to his superior officer. Here's a letter that Uh, Kelly wrote to Superintendent John Sandler and the Parliamentarian Don Cameron in in 1878. The witness can prove Fitzpatrick's falsehoods can be found by advertising, and if this is not done immediately, horrible disasters will follow. Fitzpatrick shall be the cause of greater slaughter to the rising generation than St. Patrick was to the snakes and the toads in Ireland for i had robbed plundered ravished and murdered everything i met my character could not be painted blacker than it as present but thank god my consciousness is as clear as the snow in peru in an interview 3 months before his execution kelly said that at the time of the incident he was 200 miles from home and according to him his mother had asked fitzpatrick if he had a warrant and fitzpatrick said that he only had a telegram to which his mother said that Dan need not go. Fitzpatrick uh, said, pulling out his revolver, I will blow your brains out if you interfere. His mother replied, you would not be so handy with that popgun of yours if Ned were here. Dan then said, trying to trick Fitzpatrick, there is Ned coming along by the side of the house. While he was pretending to look out the window for Ned, Dan cornered Fitzpatrick, took the revolver and claimed that he had released Fitzpatrick unarmed. When Kelly was asked if Fitzpatrick tried to take liberties with his sister, Kate Kelly said no. That is a foolish story. If he or any other policeman tried to take liberties with my sister, Victoria would not hold him. Fitzpatrick rode to Benella, and he was reported that he had been attacked by Kelly as well as his brother Dan. His mother and the neighbour, uh, Brick Williamson, and the Kelly brother-in-law, Bill Skillian. Fitzpatrick claimed that all except Kelly's mother had been armed with revolvers, and that Kelly had shot him with l- in the left wrist, and that Ellen Kelly had hit him on the helmet with a coal shovel. Williamson and Skillian were arrested for their part in the affair. Kelly and Dan were nowhere to be found, but Ellen was taken into custody along with her baby, Alice. Let's just take a moment to reflect that the police arrested a mother and the baby as well. So, imagine that today, huh? Imagine in the news that, that you know, there was a guy that was, was a, a criminal and the police arrested the mother and the baby and put them into a jail cell. Mrs. Kelly, Skillian and Williamson were tried and convicted of attempted murder against Fitzpatrick. When Kelly was executed, his mother was still in prison. Kelly asserted that he was not present, and that Fitzpatrick's wounds were self-inflicted. Keneally, who interviewed the remaining Kelly brother, Jim Kelly, And Kelly's uh, Kelly cousin and a gang provider, Tom Lloyd, in addition to the closing examining in 1881, reported by the Royal Commission on the Police Force of Victoria, wrote that Fitzpatrick was drunk when he arrived at the Kellys. That while he was waiting for Dan, he made a pass at Kate, and Dan threw him to the floor. In the ensuing struggle, Fitzpatrick drew his revolver. Ned appeared and with his brother seized the constable, disarmed him. But not before he struck his wrist against the the projecting part of the door lock, an injury he claimed to be the gunshot wound. Upon what Kelly claimed was Fitzpatrick's false evidence, his mother Skillian and Williamson were convicted. A reward of £100, today's money, $25 billion, was offered for Kelly's arrest. Kelly claimed that this injustice exasperated him and led to think... um, and led to him his taking to the bush just before Kelly was taken away from Benella after Glen Warrowan shootout. Senior Constable Kelly was reported he interviewed Kelly in his cell and that he admitted to shooting Fitzpatrick. Gee, it would have been nice to have like tape evidence in those days. You know? Um you know, just this this backwards and forwards that's going there. There's a lot of well, I mean, you know, just police writing this stuff down and then they uh, they say that this is what that person said. Meanwhile, that person's in a jail cell. And it's, it's, it's their word against the police's and they believe the police... It'd be real nice if there was a tape recording. And chest cameras as well. I think that'd be great, you know, chest cameras because, you know, when the police go out there and stuff like that. But... As you can tell, this era wasn't like that. It was, it was Australia's Wild West, and this is why we have such a fascination about it. Because, you know, it's clear that both sides were pretty much at the wrong here. There was no, there was no. How do I put this? De-escalation in this event. There was no de-escalation. There was, you know, the, the, the Kelly Gang were clearly criminals, but at the same time, the police were trying to get them on absolutely and utterly. Everything, even like when a guy's chopping wood, he tries to get him on the license for chopping wood. But in those days, uh, as a colony of England and essentially, you know, the wild, I would say west because it was technically south of England, but it was a wild country. It, it really was. So Kelly said about the incident. It was in the course of his attempt, uh, attempted arrest of Fitzpatrick, endeavored to catch and hold me by my foot. And in the struggle, he tore the sole and heel of my boot clean off with one well-directed blow. I sent him sprawling against the wall And and the staggering blow. I then gave him partly accounts for me for his subsequent conduct towards my family and myself. It is reported that in the aftermath Kelly ominously foreshadowed the crime that he would eventually sentence him to death and told lonigan well lonigan i never shot a man yet but if i ever do god help me you'll be the first the trial at the Benella court On the 17th of May 1878, Williamson, Skillian and Ellen Kelly were on remand, were charged with aiding and abetting attempted murder. The three appeared on the 9th of October 1878 before Judge Redmond Barry and charged with attempted murder. Despite Fitzpatrick's uh, doctor reporting a strong smell of alcohol on the constable and his inability to confirm the wrist wound was caused by a bullet, Fitzpatrick's evidence was accepted by the police. The judge and the jury made up of several ex-police. A shanty keeper who did business with the police, and according to J.J. Keneally, others who were prejudiced against the Kellys. The three were convicted of Fitzpatrick's evidence, and Fitzpatrick's evidence would later be corroborated by Williamson when he was interviewed in prison by Captain Frederick Standish. Interviewed, but not recorded by tape, I assume. Skillian and Williamson both received sentences of six years, and Ellen three years of hard labour. Barry stated that if Kelly were present, he would give him 15 years. Frank Hardy, a successful and well-known farmer in the area, offered to pay Ellen uh, Kelly's bail, upon which bail was immediately refused. Ellen Kelly's sentence was considered unfair, even by people who had no cause to be Kelly sympathisers. Alfred Wyatt, a police magistrate, headquarters in Benella, told the commissioner later that, I thought the sentence upon the old woman, Mrs. Kelly, was a severe one. Enoch Downs, a truant officer, recounted the commission in 1881 that while speaking to Joe Byrne's mother, he said that he did not believe in the sentence and if policy had been used or consideration for the mother's shown, that two or three months would have been ample. The legacy of Fitzpatrick himself is coloured by the facts that he was later dismissed from the force for drunkenness and perjury. The Stringy Bark Police Murders. After the sentences were handed down in the Bonella Police Court, both Ned and Dan Kelly doubted that they could convince the police of their story. So they went into hiding, where they were later joined by friends Joe Byrne and Steve Hart. The police had received information that Kelly gang were in the Wombat Ranges, and their head of the King River on the 25th of October, 1878. The two police parties were secretly dispatched, one from Greta, consisting of five men with Sergeant Steele in command, and one from Mansfield with four men with the intention of executing a pincer movement. Sergeant Kelly from the Mansfield party set off to search for the Kellys, accompanied by Constable McIntyre, Lonegan and Scanlon. All were in civilian dress. The police set up a camp on the disused diggings near two miners' huts at the Bark Creek in a heavily timbered area, a site suggested by the Kennedy in a letter to the superintendent Sandelier before the party had assembled because of the distance between Mansfield and the King River and because the area was so impenetrable, quote-unquote. Early the next day, Kennedy and Scallion went down to the creek to explore, leaving McIntyre to attend the camp duty. At about noon, Lonnigan he- heard a strange noise down by the creek and McIntyre went to investigate. Hoping that there could be some kangaroos that they could shoot for dinner, instead, he shot and killed some parrots, which he cooked for dinner, unaware that at the time that the sound of the shots alerted the bushrangers to their location. At about 5 p.m., McIntyre was at the fire, making tea with Lonigan by him when they were suddenly surprised by the Kelly gang with the cry, "Bail up and hold up your arms!" McIntyre testified that Kelly took his fouling piece, and that all the gang members were armed. Kelly stated that only uh, they only had two guns, and having left his revolver by the tent door, McIntyre held up his hands as directed. Lonigan went for cover behind a tree and at the same time put his hands on his revolver. And Kelly shot him in the temple. He fell to the ground and said, "O oh Christ, I am shot.' He died a few seconds later. Kelly remarked, "'What a pity. What made the fool run?' Kelly and McIntyre searched, and when they found that he was unarmed, let him drop his hands. They took Lonegan and McIntyre's revolvers and helped themselves to the articles from the tent." Kelly uh, talked to McIntyre and expressed his wonder that the police should have been so foolhardy as to look for him in the ranges. It was evident that he knew uh, the exact uh, state of the camp. The number of police had descriptions of the horses. He asked where the other two were and McIntyre, and he told McIntyre he would kill him if he lied. McIntyre revealed their whereabouts and pleaded for their lives. I told Kelly that they were both countrymen and co-religious of his own. I thought he might uh, be possessed of some of that patriotic religious feeling, which I had such a bond and a sympathy amongst the Irish people. My opinion is that he possessed none of these feelings. On the question of religion, I believe he was apathetic and like a great many young bushmen, he prided himself more on his Australian birth than he did upon his extradition from a particular race. A favourite expression of his was, I will let them see what one native-born Australian can do. Okay, so this is just settling in. I'm going to stop this here because uh, we've got a lot more material to go through. So, and by now, hopefully you are asleep, just drifting off to Netherland and ready to start a day again tomorrow. Isn't this Ned Kelly thing fascinating though? Isn't it? This guy who was, you know, clearly a criminal, but... After reading a few things about what was going on, there's a, I can't help but feel for the guy, you know? I can't help but think that if there was just a little bit more of de-escalation in the whole situation, well then it would have gone a little differently, but this is the history that we have. This is how it went. Anyway, stick around for part two because we're going to continue inside of the forest and things are going to get interesting. Don't worry, I won't make it too exciting. The last thing I want to do is make sure that, well, you're not asleep because you're absolutely and utterly glued to this. Unless, of course, you're now driving along a road somewhere and you're just wanting to hear what happens next. Anyway. You're probably already asleep by now. And these words are just drifting off into the never, never. So until next time, good night. Sweet dreams. Take care. And goodbye.